Today is Wednesday. It's April 5th, 2023, and it's 2.35 in the afternoon. Hi, I'm John Williams, and this is the Mincing Rascals podcast. You can hear portions of this, you will, this Saturday night on WGN Radio at 8 p.m., and you can listen to me weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Bird from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Brandon Pope from WCIU's On the Block with Blog Club Chicago and WBEZ. You can hear my podcast, Making, on WBEZ and NPR. I'm Alice Yin, a City Hall reporter at the Chicago Tribune, and I do not have a podcast. <laughs> How is that possible? Everybody has now a you podcast. Do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the podcast world. I'm Eric Zorn. I publish the Picayune Sentinel, a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to for free. Well, not much happened this week, except, let's see here, LSU beat Iowa in the Women's NCAA Basketball Championship game, and then much controversy ensued. Donald Trump was arraigned in a Manhattan criminal court charged with 34 low felony counts. A more liberal justice was decidedly elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Oh, and Brandon Johnson is the mayor-elect of Chicago, having bested Paul Vallis by a couple points. Let's start there. Alice, you go first. What happened? Yeah, um, uh, I I would say pretty momentous uh, day for Chicago. I think it the city really made history electing uh, probably the most progressive mayor of a big city um, in the history of America last night. Um, really, uh, a lot of people did not see this coming uh, a month, months ago, um, and really showed the testament to, um, you know, uh, Brandon Johnson's candidacy as a progressive candidate with the power of organized labor. You pointed out in the Tribune with Gregory Pratt that as of December, he was polling 3%. People had never heard of him, and only five years now has he held elected office. So a newbie for many of us who, if you had to just guess in December, didn't have much of a chance. Austin, same question to you. What happened yesterday? I mean, there's tons of stuff to talk about, but I think Alice has it spot on. This Brandon Johnson will be the most progressive big city mayor in modern American history, and it's the result of really a 10-plus year march from the CTU to go from a union dedicated to servicing its members to a politically motivated organizing political machine. And it is the most powerful political machine in Chicago. uh, And it proved that yesterday uh, and probably the state. So one thing that's very interesting, actually a couple things on in terms of turnout. So for one, I think it's fascinating the fact that Johnson's win while historic is the smallest uh, just by pure vo- raw vote numbers, the smallest, the slimmest margin of any win of any mayor in the history of Chicago, which is very interesting when you consider Lori Lightfoot winning by a quarter million votes over Tody Preckwinkle. And you have Brandon Johnson coming in and winning by what will probably be around twenty to 30,000 votes. Are you saying the margin um, is the slimmest or his vote total was the lowest the, of any No, the, the margin was the slimmest. Okay. Um, and oh, yes, I yeah. actually think the vote total, that is probably true on the vote total. I would actually have to look at that, but are, I, are you, I think are you, that's are you, probably true as well. Are you counting 1983 in the, I mean, yes. in, in the, first, in the so primary? The, and I know the, the per- general election was different, but the primary was really the election for mayor in 83 uh, because it was Democrats. And, and I think, did Washington Epton, Washington, I think on a percentage basis may have been slightly closer, but uh, that was in a turnout environment where 80 percent of plus of Chicagoans were turning out. Uh, and in this election, we, you know, we saw our typical one third of people. Right. Uh, and that, I think, is the other story here. Um, 
Chicago is the only big city in the country with this goofy election schedule where we have our elections when nobody votes. And the practical consequence of that is that special interests are advantaged the most. Um, in this case, that was the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, they're a $30 million a year organization. $20 million of that budget does not go to representing teachers. It goes to administration, to overhead, to politics. Uh, and they proved how big of an effect that can yeah, have yeah. in an environment where only 30% of people are, are, are yeah. turning out to vote. Can I ask Alice something? I wanted to know her opinion on this, which is my sense was that the CTU was holding off on Brandon Johnson and Johnson himself was holding off waiting for Chewy Garcia to get into the race, that Chewy would have been the candidate for the CTU, but that he was dithering and he was waiting for his election in, in November. And finally, the CTU decided you know what we're putting forward brandon johnson that that johnson was uh, a little bit of an afterthought for the ctu that they would have gotten behind chewy and that this he wouldn't he wouldn't be mayor like today does that does, does that match up with your reporting experience at all i think yes and no i think definitely um a lot of people including the ctu were expecting um chewy to enter earlier and to possibly get behind him but they didn't put all their eggs in one basket i think all the way back in 2018 they were um they were preparing uh, Brandon Johnson to get into politics. They were backing his election to unseat Richard Boykin for his for for Cook County Commissioner. Um, that a lot of that victory was possible because of his the or, or the might of um, CTU and other unions that backed Johnson in that election. Um, and you know, I when I was talking to Johnson all those years before when he was just uh, talking about his legislation on the county board, he, we didn't talk about a mayoral candidacy, but he did talk like he had grander ambitions that he had future you know ambitions for what he wanted to do for the city of chicago specifically so i wouldn't be surprised if they weren't thinking about this but not really knowing exactly what they would decide at, as of yet brandon were you surprised by what happened yesterday uh, there was a range of things i experienced yesterday surprise was one of them i think if you looked around two or two thirty at the way things were going the map the Highest voter turnout ward, seven of the 10 were valid strongholds. So early on, I'm just thinking, ah, well, it's pretty much settled. But people vote after 5 p.m. They get off of work and they go vote. And the working class said, yeah, we're going to vote for uh, Brandon Johnson here. So uh, I look at this race. I look at what happened. I, I saw two contrasting visions, a vision that was stoking the fears of Chicagoans and a vision that was inspiring hope for Chicagoans and what can be, and people chose hope. Not overwhelmingly, it's still a very thin uh, margin, and so it's still very divisive. That's what people chose. And I think also the story here is we're seeing a dramatic shift in the Black political establishment here in Chicago, as well as the political establishment overall here in Chicago. Black-wise, Bobby Rush endorsed Paul Vallis. Paul Vallis did not win Bobby Rush's ward. These, these legends, Jesse White, all this, they, they, they supported Paul Vallis, yet black voters overwhelmingly said, no, nah, we're going to go with Brandon Johnson. Why? I think it's pretty clear. I mean, this was a very racialized race. Chicago tends to put racial politics above all. Um, and when you have a candidate who is backed by the FOP and backed by people who have sentiments that aren't so gleaming about black people when you have controversies that question your opinion of black people people are going to remember that 
I think that was ultimately what ended up happening here. The black political establishment is skewing younger. The days of Jesse White and Bobby Rush dictating things for where black uh, the black vote goes might be waning. These endorsements probably didn't matter much at all. People just went with what their what the general vibe was, and then also the daily machine style politics overall, just above black establishment politics. This is kind of a, a bit of a strike to that. I don't think it's the end of it necessarily, but it's definitely a blow. So I think you're gonna, you saw a contrasting vision shine through, mm-hmm. and we're just going to have to see how it uh, plays out these next four years. <laughs> yeah. There were also some uh, black aldermen whose wards went for went strongly for Johnson, and these but these black aldermen had had endorsed Vallis as well, right? Last I checked, all 16 majority black wards went to Johnson, and a lot of black aldermen endorsed Vallis. So, so I mean that, that's, but that's very interesting that this. Old About guard, the, yeah. The old guard of, of these black politicians uh, seem to have no sweat. Danny Davis, I think, was an, also endorsed Dallas, right? No, right he endorsed Johnson. No, Danny. Okay, who who was the other? Oh, he, was it? Oh, never mind. It was, it was some other. There, there was some another prominent African American politician. Also, you had Jesse Dallas. White. You had Bobby Rush, Anthony um, Beal, Anthony Beal, David Moore. Wasn't it Sophia weird though King. on the endorsement trail though? You had. Jane Fonda and Bernie Sanders and Cynthia Nixon and Judge Mathis, you know, these people who I I don't care what they think, except that they're, you know, very liberal names in the national media and they endorse Johnson. And I didn't think that would help put it this way. How did the tough-on-crime message not win the day for Vallis? I mean, if not now, when would would Chicagoans say, okay, we need to elect the tough-on-crime candidate? Austin, how did that fail? The CTU notwithstanding, you'd think that Vallis isn't an unknown. He's not a bad guy. How does that not well, work? I it's hard not to make sweeping. Gen- it, it, we shouldn't be making sweeping generalizations about a race that was decided by 20 or 30,000 people in a city of 2 million plus people. Right. So yeah, I think it's easy to play into it. Well, tough on crime doesn't work. Well, it worked for like 48 percent of all the people voting. So it's not like it was completely toast. But I do think for Vallis, uh, what ended up being the difference between round one and round two was one, those folks who talked about like a Bernie Sanders or I don't even know a Cynthia Nixon. I'm not sure if young people care about Cynthia Nixon, but <laughs> big progressive shining stars coming to Chicago uh, and the organizing power of the CTU brought out young progressive voters more so in round two than in round one. So we saw the share of voters uh, under 45 rise. Yeah, uh, that was huge. I also think you saw really um, in a ward like Ward 44 with Alderman Tom Tunney, uh, who endorsed Vallis. That was a a white sort of lakefront liberal ward that actually tilted Johnson. So what that tells me is a lot of the attacks on Vallis as sort of a crypto MAGA Republican landed with some people, especially white voters and and, and white women. So I think... Uh, yeah, that, that was sort of the reason why a simplified message on tough on crime didn't work. And also, if you get into the details about what people actually mean when they say tough on crime or what they mean when they say defund the police or invest in people, um, it's not so binary. Um, I think the first round might have led us to believe that mm-hmm. that was the case. And it certainly is for many people. Uh, but for some of those voters that were persuaded to Johnson's side, it wasn't so simple. Well, I think also when we talk about crime, we need to think about how 
Um, the majority of black voters, it seems, have gone with Johnson and black neighborhoods overwhelmingly suffer the brunt of violence in Chicago. Um, so I'm already seeing some national media takes being like, this wasn't the referendum on crime we thought it was. I think that's wrong. I think um, public safety was top of the mind. Um, and <clears throat> Johnson's message on public safety uh, resonated more with uh, important blocks of the city versus Vallis's. Um, And I don't even know if it really comes down to their the, the nuts and bolts of their public safety police department plans, which um, are different. But um, I don't I wouldn't say that they're like polar ends that we would believe it was more their rhetoric, their personal stories, their histories with dealing with crime. Every debate Johnson mentioned, I live in the West Side. I wake up to gunshots. I know what it's like. Vallis would say, I come from a family of first responders. We need to like restore a demoralized police department. Um, and, you know, um, I think it's important to, uh, you know, give space to how um, cons- how concerned residents across Chicago are. With crime, but I think there is a fine line between um, validating those concerns and maybe describing them, especially if you're a white candidate, in a way that might offend people. And, you know, Vallis, his history of social media posts, whether he posted them or not, um, his radio appearances, um, if you start describing the city too much as like a lawless, anarchist, dystopian, um, I don't know, hellhole. I don't think he's a word hellhole, but no, but it um, didn't work for Darren Bailey. I mean, that that's an interesting. Right. If you analogy. have pictures of Darren Bailey after he won the nomination, if you are sharing, if you are saying these things while sharing videos of um, black youth, like I don't know, jumping on cars or whatever, it sends, um, I think, the wrong message of a lot of minority communities. Well, I was I was going to say to even go deeper on the South and West Side voters thing. I mean. The South and West Side experience and they brunt of the violence and they've seen administration after administration come in and preach more police, more police, more police. And yet the South and West Side are still dealing with the same problems decade after decade after decade. And so this was saying, hey, let's try something different here. Maybe addressing the root causes of crime actually is the way to address crime. Let's 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 roll the dice here and see if there's something different we can do than just more of the same, which is what Paul Vallis was offering. More policing is not a new idea. That's something that pretty much every moderate Democrat offers or Republican offers, and it doesn't really fix anything. More police is not necessarily reduced crime ever here in Chicago. I do wonder a little bit about the counterfactual if there had been a tougher in crime person with better Democratic bona fides than Vallis. I mean, there were a lot of people who I spoke to before this election who were like very uncomfortable with Vallis's social media that Alice mentioned, how cozy he was with just how cozy he is with the, the Fraternal Order of Police and with all some right wing political figures, uh, G.D. Ives and so on, that there was, there was just this feeling like we can't trust this guy because he's he's you know he's either a Republican light or a, or a very hardcore <laughs> moderate Democrat, and I just wonder if you had had someone like like a Mike Quigley or an Arnie Duncan, someone who the, the guys who didn't run get in the race and and try to uh, make that same message, perhaps without quite quite so ap- apocalyptic rhetoric, but to have that. To have that kind of candidate without the baggage that Vallis brought with him, that if we would have seen the same result, like I, I don't know how much of the of the vote right there on the margins was anti-Vallis and how much of it was was uh, pro Johnson. Well, Vallis, I would feel only made it to the runoff because he had that strong conservative support from the bungalow belts. So I guess presuming he would still run, but another 
a candidate like running from the centrist position, they would split the vote and then maybe yeah, they, neither would make the runoff. But yeah, that's the thing about our silly system, I guess. There's a lot of listeners that reached out to me and they had the sort of sick feeling in their stomach this morning that they did when they thought Trump won for a second time. That, oh no, now what? And these would be people I would describe as largely in the suburbs. I got a lot of listeners out there. And I know Brandon Johnson isn't the mayor of the suburbs, but there's a real symbiotic relationship between the city and the suburbs. We each need each other. Brandon Johnson is the mayor of the Chicago city that needs the city suburbs, and the city suburbs need a strong Chicago. And the people out there, this does not encourage them to invest in the city, work in the city, eat in the city, tour in the city. The gut punch for people this morning was, oh, crap. It's Brandon Johnson. Why? I mean, I hope you press them on this. So, what do they think? Why? Because yeah. they th- because they think the Paul Vallis was going to make the city safer. I feel like I'm less concerned oh, ahead, about Alice. people from the suburbs like not wanting to move to Chicago versus people who already live in Chicago and contribute a lot to our tax base or our I don't know city workers or whatever like wanting to leave Chicago, which. I don't know. People always say that after an election that doesn't work out for them. But well, I don't think they would, I'm not describing people leaving the city per se. But just think about how many people in the suburbs work in the city or come to the city or could come to the city. And now they don't. They're afraid to get on the CTA. They don't want they don't want to park and walk the city streets at night. I was at the theater. I was at Book of Mormon last night. Everybody came out, looked at their phones and went, whoa. They couldn't believe what had happened while they were in the show. The numbers were in. And I'm telling you, there's a population of people that we need to encourage to come back downtown and embrace. And that's going to be a heavy lift right now for Brandon Johnson. Austin, am I just making this up? Absolutely not. And Chicago's biggest challenge, one of its biggest challenges, I would put this even above above public safety. And I think in some ways, public safety is a symptom of, of this, is lack of growth. We are down a million people from our peak in the 50s. Uh, and that affects everything about the city, from provision of public services to our economy to just our vibrancy and diversity and um, and culture as a city. It's a huge problem. And I think electing who can fairly be described as a democratic socialist or socialist mayor to lead the city does not inspire confidence with your typical run-of-the-mill, uh, you know, large American business executive. It just doesn't. Uh, and I think people saying the, the, the opposite are, are, are totally clueless. Or soccer mom and, in the suburbs. Or whoever. Who, if you want to come to Chicago to plant roots or make a bet or make an investment, it has become harder to do. Before we begin rend- rending our garments about this, let, let's give Mayor-elect Johnson a chance. And this, this is the argument that <clears throat> that I would make, which is like, like, there's a lot of rhetoric during a campaign, a lot of promises, a lot of things get said. And then comes the grim, grimy business of governing. And he's going to have to make accommodations with not just the people in the city council, but he's going to have to figure out what he can get done in Springfield. He thinks he's going to get a whole bunch of money from Springfield, and I'm not sure he's going to get that. He's going to have to deal with COVID relief dollars drying up. Uh, he's going to have to deal with making the case for a certain tax and probably fee increases. And let's see what he actually does versus what he's – I mean, he – I found that his campaign rhetoric was fairly gauzy. Now, Alice, you covered every debate probably, right? But but I, I felt like like when you would push him on things like, well, what happens if, if you can't get mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. real estate transfer tax? What happens if yeah. you can't get, yeah. get all these things that you want? What, what's your plan B? And he, and he would, you know, 
circumlocute his way around all those things. But let's let, before we before we all decide to uh, move to Arizona or whatever we're planning to do here, uh, let's let's give Brandon Johnson a chance to see. You know, he, he's going to have to he's going to learn on the job here, and there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, opportunities for him to get things done, and there there things that he's not going to be able to get done. But I don't think the city is going to go down into downward spiral. If if it is, it's not going to be right away. And John said, Catanzaro gotta, said that there was. <laughs> oh, well, there will be. Well, of course, there will be blood in the streets. <laughs> yes. No, but I'm serious about that. It's like it's like this is we don't. That's the best option right now is to like. Okay, but then, Alice, how realistic is? the Johnson platform, how much of that is he going to be able to accomplish? Yeah. So I would say um, if we divide it into two camps, like the stuff he needs to pass through Springfield's cooperation and city councils, honestly, I would say the first bucket of stuff is more realistic. I would say the makeup of the IGA is more favorable to Johnson. They literally passed an elected school board bill over the presiding mayor's objections two years ago. But city council, like we saw last week, I think, um, they're flexing their muscle. They're trying to be more independent. I would not say it's a stretch to compare this to, well, I don't want to, I, I don't want this to happen, but the council wars of the 80s where they are really going to try to resist a lot of these more sweeping agendas. If we thought city council under Lightfoot would be contentious, like it might get worse. I don't see a lot of this getting done immediately. There is nothing I hate more than like fatalistic nihilists about the city of Chicago. It's a place that I love and believe in and would like to die in at the same time. And and, and a new mayor should be given grace in terms of whether they can pass an agenda or not. But his record is that of the CTU over the last 10 years. And the consequences of CTU's increasing radicalization and politicization, those are very clear. And it is spending a lot more money for very little in terms of results and chaos in schools, in terms of labor stoppages. And it is all driven by an extraordinarily progressive ideology. If you want to learn more about how that has evolved, you can watch our documentary, Local One, on YouTube. There's over 600,000 people who have watched it, mostly in the city of Chicago. Um, That is the record that people are looking at and saying... That is now the mayor's office. But if the CTU is now the mayor. Well, right, that, right. that does not inspire confidence. So what does that mean? So then what – how does that inf- – that's how it informs – but what would the consequence of that be? So the, the consequence is they're, they're now forced to govern not just over the schools, which have been a total disaster and mess, but a horrifying problem with public safety and a massive fiscal time bomb with federal COVID relief money running out. Their ability to govern a major city in a way that but, attracts But the CTU won't is, be the is, mayor of is, Chicago. The CTU is not the mayor of Chicago. Brandon Johnson is. Brandon Johnson is the CTU. He, he was a political employee of the CTU for so 10 years. So you think he'll be inept? Career. You think he'll be inept? I, I think the CTU has proven to be inept at solving any of Chicago's well, biggest well, problems. Well, even if yeah. Johnson is completely aligned with what the CTU wants. I don't think the CTU has 26 votes in city council. I think they grew their share for sure this election cycle. But if Johnson wants to pass, say, a budget that defunds the police or raises taxes or whatever, I think it will be a he will it will require a lot of muscling to get enough votes to enact that. Although I will also say that we're probably facing a fiscal cliff. We're probably not getting more COVID money. So, you know, cuts to the police department. I would not be surprised if that happens regardless. But I don't know if that would be in the same vein of I'm going to intentionally reallocate the police budget or whatever. I don't think the teachers union is as unpopular as we're making it out to be. It's unpopular, lost popularity over time, but I don't think it has the same 
stain or disdain or disgust from people as the FOP would or anything else. Like, I don't think it's necessarily something that people, I don't think that many people went into the voting booth like, oh, the CTU and shuddered at it. I, I don't think that's the case here. And he will have to prove that he can legislate outside of CTU influence. I mean, that's, that is the big elephant in the room and the big question. We haven't had this before, really. Uh, so can he, when we have, you know, a potential for negotiations between schools and teachers and, and city hall, what's that going to look like? Is it actually going to make the relationship better or is it going to make things just really corrupt? And I think that's something we, we got to find out. But I think we do have to extend grace here in the fact that, like, I don't think the CTU is as dark or evil a force as or at least in people's minds in Chicago as maybe some people would think it is. Oh, I, w- I was saying the last poll on their uh, favorability in the city, I think, was all the way back in 2019. You know, I think after that strike, um, I don't think that damaged their standing as much. They were it kind of like reinforced their reputation among lot in the city as bargaining for the common common good as they like to put it um i would say the work stoppages over covid i like in certain parts of the city uh tarnish your reputation a bit but i think overall it just start spread this like widespread frustration among parents over just the chaos and dysfunction and i think a lot of parents blamed both sides they thought lightfoot could have handled it better and they thought ctu could have handled it better and they don't really have like a strong 100 percent opinion one way or the other about who whose side they were on in those stoppages but they just they just want it to stop and they just want the the uncertainty and like the needing to find child care at last mm-hmm, minute like mm-hmm. they just want it to stop do we Angela, can we circle back a little bit i wanted to to ask alice a little bit more about what she sees as the makeup of the new city council in terms of i i was looking at the numbers this morning and, and uh, the it's uh, there are more black aldermen than white aldermen now and there's a i think a few Two or three more Hispanic aldermen. I'm not, but but it's the the uh, the balance has shifted, and also the ph- philosophical balance has shifted. And I just wondered if if you have a thumbnail sketch of where you think this council is going to be, where they're going to land. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think my colleague Ad would know more because she's been following the races. Um, but yeah, I do think city council got more diverse. I I think it got more progressive. I, I still think um, the majority we saw that voted for that ordinance last week that wanted to get them more independence, create more committees, incidentally consolidate, I guess, more of their power among those aldermen who got the pickings of the committee heads. Um, I think that is still the, the story to watch um, to see how they will uh, function and whether that will stymie any legislation, any progress, or as they say, truly create an, uh, independence in a healthy way. Another interesting dynamic there is there's going to be a sizable share of wards that the incumbent mayor did not win, which is a much different right. dynamic, right, than what we saw with Mayor Lightfoot. Um, the last I checked, there were CTU endorsed, using that as a proxy for sort of the new progressive left in Chicago, they endorsed six incumbent aldermen, all of those aldermen won. They endorsed 11 aldermen running for open seats or contested elections, and I believe four of those won. So it's not like they have a massive cadre of endorsed candidates currently in the city council, but the CTU has a lot of money and they give money to a majority of of the council. Um, And I think that is going to be a fascinating dynamic to watch. It's almost like if the if Mayor Lightfoot had a I think this was actually a controversy at one point. She had like a super PAC or a PAC pressuring aldermen from the outside to kind of pass her agenda at certain points. That it's going to be that dynamic on steroids. And I, I think we shouldn't forget that some aldermen are, um, 
I guess a bit more power hungry than others and willing to, you know, switch sides, switch allegiances if it means that they will get the assignments they want, the the standing they want. I, I think some of Lightfoot's strongest allies on the floor her first her her term, they started out enemies or vice versa. So who knows how it'll look a few months from now or a year from now. I wonder how Lori Lightfoot feels about all this. I had a nightmare slash dream before election day that she would wake up that morning and call an 8 a.m. press conference and endorse somebody. And I, and I just, I, I was, I was weighing like, who would, who would she endorse and who would it benefit or would it, would it make any difference at all? And I, it was just fascinating. Like it'd be a very light foot thing to do at just like eight o'clock in the morning. Oh yeah. By the way, uh, I'm going for Vallis. Like, you know, I, I, I almost thought she might do it, but. Share that. Your, your dreams really aren't that interesting. Why am I thinking about work in that. my sleep? I'm trying to get I some know, sleep here. <laughs> uh, by the way, according to uh, Block Club Chicago, Lori Lightfoot was at Emporium on North Milwaukee the night of the election, watching the results on their phones with looks like some of her team after being denied a sanctioned selfie with Lightfoot, a popular TikToker named Milo Reyes. 30-year-old Westtown resident ended up snapping a covert photo that shows the mayor and a few others sitting at one of Emporium's long tables talking over a beer. If you're wondering, she had a Pony Pills beer from Half Acre. Journalism right there, huh? <laughs> yeah, big James. I think James it humanizes her. Would her endorsement have helped, and how much? I think it would have helped Brandon Johnson or Paul Vallis. I think either one. Because th- th- what, what can't be denied is what we saw. She finished third. She won South and West Side wards. Like she still has or had some base that we just couldn't define in the media, right? That that wanted her back. So I I do wonder if she put her thumb on the scale. I think it would help either candidate. She could make the argument for Brandon Johnson that he could help continue her legacy in a progressive nature. She could make the argument for Vallis that you know continue, uh, you know, things on the right direction in, in fighting crime or whatever. So it, the tough thing about life of it is, what are her politics? <laughs> it's, it's really hard to define exactly where she would go on it. But I think it would have helped either candidate if she would have put her thumb on the scale. Alice, you know, is she close to endorsing either of them? I, I don't think so. And to play devil's advocate, I think while she did have a good showing among all the black wards, if she did endorse Vallis or Johnson, I think it would be confusing and not that helpful for them because during mm. the last weeks of her campaign, she attacked both of them so hard. Um, um, a lot of her attacks against both of them were used by their respective opponents in the runoff. She was like the first to really go hard at Vallis about the Republican abortion stuff. So it would have been very easy for whoever she endorsed their opponent to then play her, her old clip of them and be like what is even going on here he also said johnson would never be mayor yeah right she's she's very dismissive (laughs) out of the gate politically speaking there was some talk that that lightfoot waited too long to realize that johnson was a bigger threat to her than than uh garcia and that she trained her fire too much on garcia waited too long and the the other sort of conventional or not conventionalism but thing that i've been hearing is that Vallis waited too long to try to define Brandon Johnson, that he thought, well, I'm going to run a positive campaign. If you remember, even the first debate, uh, he was he was he was not going to go on the attack. And then uh, so I'm wondering, uh, Alice, do you see either of those as being uh, fatal errors on the parts of those candidates? I guess every time I like learn a lesson, it gets proven wrong in the next election. So take this with a grain of salt. But I think in both the cases of Chewy and Vallis, you cannot just leave yourself defenseless when you are being defined by your opponent. Um, you cannot assume like, oh, I am 
being considered a front runner, I have a safe, cush safe cushion. Why should I degrade myself to responding to these attacks that I think I am really above? You should be ready, like day one of the runoff, to define your opponent, be the first. And I remember the night of February 28th, Ballas did not really mention Johnson at all, I think. Johnson immediately ripped into Ballas and said he authored the tale of two cities and that set the tone of the runoff. And then a week later, they had the debate and Ballas kind of looked um, diminutive, even though he is the taller physically figure, uh, while Johnson was pointing at him and insinuating he was a Republican, a racist, et cetera, et cetera. I think that one week, especially because you only have four weeks of runoff, that really hurt him. One last question for you, because we've taken more of your time than we asked for, and we sure appreciate your insight. But just back to how able is he going to be to affect some of the changes that he talked about? Just as a for instance, the if your home is worth more than a million dollars or sells for more than a million dollars, the transfer of that is going to cost you a lot more money. Is that something the executive can do, or does that require city council or state approval? You know, I'm just thinking about the way he's going to fund all of these programs. Well, for one, he promised he would do it in the first 100 days. But on the other hand, it requires either a change in state law or a referendum in the next election. So it would he pretty much would have to go to Springfield and persuade them to do it. So at best, down the road. I mean, I, I agree with Alice, what she said earlier, that he's going to get some cooperation from Springfield, given how strong the Democratic majority is down there. But... But my feeling about that is that the that the General Assembly will will nod to the mayor of Chicago. But what if it's going to cost money? If they're going to ask to spend money that that the downstate Democrats want for their district, and they want that funnel to Chicago, you're going to get a much different reaction there. I think that's going to be a real. Those are going to be heavier lifts. Uh, getting getting those downstate Democrats to uh, to part with money. So it's it's going to be an interesting challenge for him for sure. Excellent reporting all run long, Alice. Your story with Gregory Pratt cool. is a long one in the Tribune today. And it's very detailed, and there's interesting anecdotes in there. We really appreciate your sharing some yeah, of your thoughts with and, us today. And I, and I want to say, as a former colleague of, of, of Gregory's analysis, that they did just a terrific job during this whole campaign season. It was great, great reporting. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is a great discussion. Well, I guess that's what a Chicago podcast sounds like, because the rest of the world, actually, the rest of the world was very interested in following the Chicago race. A buddy of mine called me from New York said, what happened? I said, yeah, they elected this Brandon Johnson guy. But in the meantime, Donald Trump is in, uh, arraigned on 34 low felony counts. And it's, I still think, going to be an uphill lift. Eric, what was your take on what happened on Tuesday? Well, I, first of all, I thought the, uh, the wall-to-wall coverage on cable t TV was absurd. Uh, that they didn't really know much and they didn't have really much to show. I had it on in the background for a long time because I wanted to see if there was going to be any tumult in the streets of New York, and there really wasn't. And so it was it was just so many hours of blah 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 about we didn't even they didn't even know early on what what was in the indictment, and uh, so I, I just thought it was sort of over the top. Um, I, I disagree with you a little bit, John. I think that there's there's a lot of evidence here in ammunition that if if it weren't someone who was as polarizing as Donald Trump, I think it would be pretty easy to get convictions on him. That that uh, you know, Cohen, Michael, Michael Cohen went to prison based on less, less uh, evidence than we see against Trump. And uh, uh, you know, all he's going to need is, a, is one person on the jury to say, you know, MAGA forever, I'm not going to vote to convict Trump, and they'll, and they'll, um, uh, he'll be acquitted. But I think the, I mean, I think this is a serious case against him. It's not the best case they could bring, but I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's trivial. My general reaction is like, 
I have I have Trump fatigue syndrome, if I'm being honest. And I don't like thinking about <laughs> this too, at all. But it's a big deal. I think the last president charged with uh, this kind of a crime was Ulysses S. Grant, right? Am I, yeah. Do I have that right? So, um, yeah, obviously it's a historic moment. Um, one thing that I thought was sort of notable is in the indictment that was unsealed, The my understanding of the law is that you can treat these falsifications of business records, right, which is sort of the what's being alleged here, as a felony if you can identify, quote, another crime that he was trying to conceal or commit. Right. And I think it seems like the case is going to come down to what was that another crime? And the way that I read the indictment or and read reporting on the indictment is it is still a bit vague on that point. So that is really what I would be looking for is there's alleged, you know, there's a it's tangentially related to perhaps campaign finance violations. We don't know that. Or was there another crime that was trying to be uh, concealed that that to me is still not clear. And I think that's actually a problem. Um, I think if you're going to bring a case like this, even against a former president like a Donald Trump, um, that should be buttoned up and very clear. Yeah, you know, I'm not a legal mind, so I, I, I don't really know much about whether they can nail him or not on any of this. Um, but kind of with the Trump fatigue thing, I'm just so used to the guy being Teflon. Nothing really sticks. So I'm kind of like, wake me up when he's actually found guilty. Because at this point, it's just, it's more legal trouble. Wake me up when he's charged for January 6th, right? Because the other thing, this case, it's like over some Story Daniels stuff, right? Among some other things. You would think that the fact that he's associated with this whole Stormy Daniels and the McDougal affair would be enough, right? Like, that should be punishment enough, and his his supporters would flee. But his numbers have gone up double digits in the last week because of all of this. Now, here's the thing. Here is my big conspiracy brain, and I could be totally wrong, but here we go. (laughs) <laughs> There's this Donald, pizza this, parlor and I'll go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All of this all of this helps the Trump campaign. All of this feeds into the Trump beast. This is all part of his narrative. Oh, I'm being crucified by the media. Oh, they're nailing me to the cross. Oh, I'm and now all these political rivals, they're just going out of their way to make me a political prisoner. This all fits into the narrative of his base. They're fired up. They're ready to go. And I think, unfortunately for his GOP rivals, he's going to win the GOP nomination. However, conspiracy brain, big brain, I think that's the best possible outcome for America. Because I think Joe Biden versus Trump is Joe Biden again. And if it's Joe Biden versus any other Republican, probably that Republican. So if I'm the Biden campaign, low key, they haven't I'm said a thing about it. For Trump to win they have not it. said I'm a thing about for, it. They haven't. I'm kind of rooting for Trump to get his base riled up, take over the GOP again, take him hostage, and lose and take a big fat L again. I think that's what's likely to happen here. I noticed he didn't look very happy yesterday. I mean, seriously, I was expecting him. I was expecting him to to do a lot of the thumbs up and smiling and and and. But he, he really he did not look happy in any of those pictures that I saw of him. I, I think he's maybe it's dawning on him that this is some serious stuff that he's involved in here and, and that uh, it's not going to go well. I did see 
that the next court date is December 4th. Did I read that correctly? Mm, I missed that, if that's the case, although they said it's, this thing is not going to go anywhere quickly. That's I way off. I, I was wondering if he was going to say something when he emerged from the courthouse that was going to be used against him in the trial itself, like the way maybe Cohen should just keep quiet because he may be actually weakening the case. Mr. Trump did call Alvin Bragg a criminal. You know, he gets to say that. He said this is a persecution, not an investigation. And in fact, in his about a half hour long speech afterwards, Mar-a-Lago, it was pretty much just boilerplate Trump. You know what wasn't really talked about much when it came to this thing? The child out of wedlock. In this filing from Bragg, Section 10, there's a whole thing about trying to sell information regarding a child that the defendant had allegedly fathered out of wedlock. So much is happening that that got buried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's some secret, possibly some secret Trump kid. I, 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 with Stormy it's, Matt Gates. Like, it's Matt Gates. <laughs> is it Matt Gates? Yeah, <laughs> could be. I like how they the words they're trying to use to describe uh, his relationship uh, with Stormy Daniels. That you know, for a while people were calling it an affair. It was like an, an encounter, maybe at the at the most. Yeah. Well, him <laughs> sitting at that table sure looked like that was a different view of him. That wasn't him staging it. That wasn't him getting to control the narrative. He was sitting at the defendant's table with his team of attorneys, and that looked weird. You know, that was like, okay, this is real. He's Getting his base riled up, but his base itself is not big enough to win the presidential election. It's big enough to win him the nomination, probably. But I've got to think there are a lot of Republican voters who are out in the suburbs or in the city who kind of like some of the policies that he's behind, but are really getting more and more turned off by this whole circus that surrounds him and that and that uh, will will not vote for him or will vote for somebody else. Uh, I, I don't think it helps his long-term chances that getting his base all riled up like this. I, I'm, I'm not one of those who's saying that this is putting him back in the White House. Eric, the uh, the story that a lot of people were following around the country, more so than maybe the Chicago mayor's race, was the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. What was your take on how that went down? Were you surprised, and were you surprised by the margin? Uh, I was surprised by the margin, uh, which was, I think, 55-45, basically, yeah, it was. last I looked. And uh, I also was, was – uh, quite taken by Kelly's, the conservative's uh, concession speech, where he said something like, I do not have a worthy opponent to whom I can concede. This was a deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign. And it brings me no joy to say this. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent. But I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. This was the most deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I have ever seen run for the courts. It was truly beneath contempt. Now I say this not because we did not prevail. I do not say this because of the rancid slanders that were launched against me although that was bad enough. But that is not my concern. My concern is the damage done to the institution of the court. My opponent is a serial liar, 
She's disregarded judicial ethics. She's demeaned the judiciary with her behavior. And this is the future that we have to look forward to in Wisconsin. I've been committed to the rule of law my entire career. I understand this to be the most fundamental, basic promise of civilization. And in its heart, it lives in the judiciary, and if not there, nowhere at all. We've had this laid out plainly for us. We could have the rule of law or the rule of Janet. And the people of Wisconsin have chosen the rule of Janet. It was an extremely vicious concession speech. I saw that. It's uh, you know We played that against Paul Vallis' concession speech last night, going, okay, here's one way to do it, here's another way to do it. It's critically, critically important. I mean, this campaign that I ran to bring the city together uh, would not be uh, a, a, a campaign that fulfilled my ambitions if this election is going to divide us more. So it's critically important that w- we use this opportunity to come together. And I've offered him my full support uh, on his transition. And God knows we spent a lot of time on, in forums together. Um, and certainly we shared a lot of opinions. And I, I look forward to working with him and providing him with the full support he needs to, to be a successful. The operative part of that phrase to me was, but the people of Wisconsin have chosen. So to me, at the end of the day, I thought, and that's how bad you were, that in fact, all of that, and they still took her by 10 points. Austin, what was your thought about that and the consequences of it? Well, first of all, the rule of Janet sounds like a um, the new like 7 p.m. sitcom about like a goofy judge. <laughs> Janet, where was rancid slander? Sounds like a band name. <laughs> yeah, rancid yeah. slander is a cool, yeah, 80s hardcore band. But uh, a few dynamics at play here. One is that Republicans are are getting absolutely shellacked on the abortion issue everywhere that it is used, and you see it in every race. Uh, to the point where I think in the Springfield, Illinois city treasurer's race, it was used as an issue in mailers against an opponent. This is the person in charge of the purse strings of the procedural purse strings of Springfield, Illinois, and abortion is used as an issue. That was the dominating issue, obviously, in Wisconsin. We saw a similar result in Michigan uh, in November. That's yeah. that's one factor. Um, another factor is, I don't know if this has been talked about enough post-November 2022, there is a Trump effect and a an election denialism effect that serves to suppress the vote on the right. Um, and it is the idea that voting early, your vote's not going to count. Voting by mail, you shouldn't trust that. That is shooting conservatives in the foot everywhere across the country. And there is, I, I think, slowly that is going to change as Republicans realize that they're um, totally... Uh, scoring a self-goal on themselves with that. And then the third thing that I'm not quite sure how much this affected the Wisconsin race, but I do think it had an effect on the Chicago race. And I do think you saw it in in states like Michigan. There was a large, uh, not just political realignment, geographical realignment of voters during and post COVID. And I think you saw many people in uh, move to Southern states who were more Republican voters. 
um, out of states like like a Michigan, like a Wisconsin. And I do think there are downstream political effects of that. So um, those three things, I, I think, are worth considering with the top one being being the uh, the abortion issue. We're talking about the former state Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly, the more conservative of the two. It's supposed to be a nonpartisan race, but he he worked for the Republican Party before the election. And then the more liberal Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasiewicz, and she came flat out and said, I think this abortion ruling is wrong, or at least indicated that she would rule in favor of giving women a right to an abortion in Wisconsin. They both ran campaigns that sounded more like congressional campaigns or mayoral campaigns where they say, here's how I feel about these specific issues. We're also used to justices, when asked about how you would rule on certain things, saying, well, I won't comment on that until I have it before me. They never sort of tip their hand, even though you kind of know what you're going to get. They don't talk about specific cases in, in the hypothetical. But in this case, they both very much did. And it's not just the abortion issue in Wisconsin. It's gerrymandering. It's elections. It's voter access. And if it's a, as a 50-50 state, Wisconsin, it was seen that the Supreme Court is going to decide on issues that could affect not just Wisconsin politics, but national politics. So this one, we got a lot of attention. The richest judicial race in history up to this one was Illinois, and that was a $15 million campaign spent by the two sides. This one was a $45 million campaign. Uh, her campaign spent $24 million, $24 million for her to win that seat, and she ran on the issues. They both said they would be able to divorce themselves of their personal views, and they would interpret the law. They would read the Constitution, but people voted for the outcome. They, 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 they put their money down on the horses they wanted for these issues, and now we'll just have to see how it plays out. Well, and there are a lot of voters who vote in the presidential election based on what party they're going to, you know, what what the uh, leanings going to be of the new Supreme Court justices. There are people who I, I remember, you know, going all the way back who say, "Well, yeah, I voted for Bill Clinton. I didn't care for him, but he's going to appoint Democratic or liberal leaning justices." And, and vice versa with Trump, a lot of people were saying, "Well, oh yeah," even though that's us, they're saying, "Well, yeah, yeah, Trump's a nightmare." But he did give us three conservative Supreme Court justices, and that's and that and that is huge. That is huge. So so uh, you know the idea that politics is suddenly part of the judiciary is I'm not shocked. Shocked, I got to say. But I wonder then. Yeah. So the same night where Vallis loses and this Dan Kelly guy loses, if that does start to tell us something about where the national zeitgeist is, Brandon, are you tracking with me there? I'm tracking with you a little bit. One thing I wanted to, to comment on that kind of relates to this is we're looking at the youth vote really start to rise up. You know what I mean? Not just uh, in Chicago, but also in Wisconsin with the Supreme Court race and also around the country. Uh, in Chicago alone, uh, the latest numbers that we have from the vote total, there was a 5,000 vote change from February's election to this election for mayor so that's a 32% bump. And then you look at uh, 25 to 34-year-olds, a 17,000 vote change, a 24% growth uh, from February to this election right here. So younger voters are starting to mobilize a little bit more, starting to get a little more savvy. Um, they're very much, you know, passionate about the future. 
um, but they also think differently and they, they want to try new things. So I think the, the youth are speaking and they're, they're, they're going to the polls. The, the numbers are still relatively low, lower than what older voters do. But the, the Chicago numbers are very interesting because there's almost like a pyramid going on. You saw some older voters trail off or as younger yeah. voters were rising. So it's yeah, pretty how, interesting. How did- how did my people do? <laughs> uh, well, you're, you know, you're not a day over 35, right? <laughs> well, older voters still voted in more num- raw numbers than they did. younger voters. But you're right. Between was- February and April, the older voters voted less and younger voters, for some reason, came out more for this yeah. runoff. And and I don't know if that's the charisma of Brandon Johnson or, or what, or the, the influence of the CTU and they beat the Bushes. Yeah, got, you mentioned Johnson's charisma. I think that is a, a potential real asset for him. He is a terrific speaker. That victory speech last night was was uh, spot on. It was really good. And uh, if, if he can use that kind of ability to move people, to move people on the issues that, that he might turn out to be a, a better mayor than we think, and or that, that I think anyway. I'm very skeptical about his uh, ability to be a good mayor, but uh, I'm, I'm open-minded about it. But, but he does, he's definitely one of the most charismatic politicians I've seen for a really long time. Well, it came down to this for some of us on the radio today as we were talking about it. I like him, but I don't think he's the best candidate or he was the best choice. So, you know, it's it's that that's kind of a funny place to be, isn't it? Maybe I didn't like Paul Vallis as much, but a colleague of mine here said he's the bitter pill we need to take. And this is somebody who's married to somebody in the CTU. He goes, yeah, but we got to do it. Not everybody feels that way, but I think that was kind of a prevailing sentiment. And it's one of the reasons I was as surprised as I was last night when the totals came in. One last thing, guys, that we'll just take a minute with if you want to, and that is the Iowa-LSU game and the fallout since, which is many-layered. We just mentioned it when we started the podcast today. But, um, Eric, you followed the game and the the teams, uh, at least Iowa, a lot. I mean, I followed Iowa as as soon as I became really aware of how great Caitlin Clark is, how fun it is to watch her. Uh, Her team got waxed in the last game lsu was clearly a better team and uh, i think the whole sportsmanship stuff was way overblown that these these female <laughs> female athletes trash talk each other just like male athletes do and they're all big girls and they can take it and the uh one other thing was jill biden's suggestion that i guess they backed off on which was to invite iowa to the white house along with lsu because i i think she said because iowa played such a good game well okay uh i think that was a really bad really bad idea uh in this particular instance, because the Iowa the Iowa team is basically all white, or it's a very white team, and the LSU team is basically all black, and to say that well, yeah, the black team won, but let's invite the white team just <laughs> would have looked horrible. Um, if you going forward, if you want to have that be like this is the new policy, you know, I would listen to an argument about that. I, I, I still don't think it's a great idea, but but uh, this time, gosh, no, what a terrible idea that would be overall i mean i'm just happy for the women's game i've been watching the women's game for a little bit and the biggest critique about the women's game people have had is the lack of parity um usually you would have these games where you have a one versus a two but the one blows out the two by 40 points and that was like happening so consistently especially when uconn and tennessee were the really dominant women's programs but now you have this parity we saw virginia tech make their first ever final for the indiana hoosiers we saw ohio state we saw a rise in programs lsu is their first time winning a championship i think it was their 
maybe their second Final Four, third Final Four, and the viewership numbers, man. I mean, a Sunday at 3.30 p.m. <laughs> or 2.30 p.m., they had record-breaking numbers, 9.9 million viewers, and they peaked at nearly 13 million viewers. That's the most viewed uh, women's basketball game on record at ESPN, most viewed they've ever had on ESPN Plus as well. And it was higher ratings than any NBA game or North Carolina Duke game or men's game they ever had. So we're seeing a rise in the women's game. The racial politics are very interesting. Uh, Bomani Jones' podcast is a great summation of this. Um, Iowa is a mostly white team. They have like one black player. And LSU was a mostly black team. I think the racial dynamics definitely played into the intrigue. Um, just like when people watch boxing, race is often a thing that is a narrative within that. I think that was part of it. So it was. It got kind of ugly. I think it was overdone. But hey, women's basketball, welcome to the big leagues. You yeah. are now being talked about for weeks on weeks on weeks because of great characters, great narratives, great drama, great coaches, great players. And I can't wait to see what the future looks like for the game. Or for these two teams next year, because a lot of these players yeah. are coming back as well. Caitlin's a, a junior. Oh, and, you know, it's this also rule is messed all... up. They should be allowed to go to the WNBA as soon as dudes do. They have to wait until they're like 22 or graduate. Oh, really? So she doesn't have an option next year, Caitlin Clark? Doesn't have an option, no. She has to go back. And there's also a male-female thing, too. I also heard, uh, and I think you and Eric are right about the racial optics just was intriguing or bad in Jill Biden's case, but it's also a male-female thing. Some of my female friends and colleagues were saying that we're used to the guys with all their personality and loving it, but if a woman, uh, uh, let alone a black woman, does that, well, now all of a sudden the the lady should be more polite. Pushback on that was, actually, I don't like it if a guy or a gal waves their ring finger for the last five minutes of the game and even after the game in front of the person they just beat. Better that you celebrate your win than taunt their loss. And that's that seemed to be the dominant gesture or emotion that was on the on the floor at the time. Oh, I'm pro taunting. I'm 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 pro trash talk. If you ever play basketball against me, yeah, I'm not a good basketball player, so I don't have a lot to trash talk about. But if I if I do well, prepare to get some trash talk. You know, I, I, God, I how that. humiliating that Brandon would score on me, and then I have to suffer his his taunting as well. <laughs> too easy, John. Too easy. Can't see me. You can't see me. With my three points. <laughs> Two rebounds. <laughs> I guess that was one of the taunts that Reese would use sometimes, uh, uh, Angel Reese would use, would be when she, she's 6'3", she'd out-rebound some people, then turn to them and go, jump higher. Too small. Too small. That is, in the, uh, by the way, in the annals of trash talk history, the Patrick Beverly turnaround mid-range fadeaway on LeBron James and then doing the too small and basically knocking LeBron James out of the playoffs is up there. I don't I know that if story. If anyone hasn't seen it, I don't know you, that story. Oh. Look up Pat Beverly at Chicago Bulls. But basically, <laughs> LeBron's coming back from injury. The Lakers aren't going to make the playoffs. This is, what, maybe two weeks ago? You guys yeah, watched this? Oh, very, I know. Yeah. It was recently. Yeah. yeah, it was very funny. Oh, my God. Yeah. The Lakers will make the playoffs, time. though. They will? They will make the playoffs. They're in? Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, they're in. Hey. All right, fellas. A uh, lot on the on the table today, and uh, we appreciate uh, both Alice's participation and you guys, too. Brandon Pope, Austin Berg, Eric Zorn. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams. We'll drop another pot on you next week. Yes. Right, 
See you later. That was job, really guys. fun. Thanks. Yeah. Glad right, had, really glad we had Alice too, man. She was great. She's great. Yeah, yeah. she's good. Maybe she'll she's play good. a little more in the future. Good find, guys. I, ho- I hope so. Anyway, see you guys. Talk to you. All right, peace. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.